Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Workrout. And today we have a special episode. It's our first award season check-in. We have the Venice Film Festival, the Telluride Film Festival, and Toronto, which just wrapped up today. We got those audience award winners, and I think we're already starting to see how the race could shake out. But... I'm excited because, Nick, we're going to hear from you, of course, about your experience at Venice, but we also have a special returning guest, Bennett Prosser. Welcome back, Bennett, to the pod. Ciao, buonasera. I haven't been (laughs) on in a long time, um, but I'm very excited to be back. Nick and I had a lot of fun in Venice, so ready to talk through all of the mess that was Venice and (laughs) just recap everything with you all. Yeah, I'm glad we have our Italian correspondent. Bennett is still in Italy, so this feels very much like a live news update, which is cool. It does. I love it. I am calling in from Rome. I've been in Italy for two weeks, and I've got one more, so having a long Italian summer vacation. I love it. It's like Catherine Hepburn in summertime. We went through Rome today, and we did a full Roman holiday with Audrey Hepburn, of course, we did the Mouth yes. of Truth and actually bought a calendar of uh, where every month is a different scene from Roman Holiday. And we think we hit every major location in from the film. So I love that Very so much. Cool. Yeah. So I think before we just hear from you both on what your Venice experience was like, we can just go through the award winners. So All the Beauty and the Bloodshed was our Golden Lion winner. This was the second time in history that a documentary won the Golden Lion. The first time this happened was Sacro Gras in 2013. We also had Luca Guadagnino win the Silver Lion for Best Director for Bones and All. The Grand Jury Prize went to Santo Mare, which I know you're both fans of. I'm excited to hear about that. The Special Jury Prize went to No Bears. Best Young Actor went to Taylor Russell for Bones and All. The Volpe Cup for Best Actress went to Kate Blanchett for Tar. The Volpe Cup for Best Actor went to Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inisherin, and Best Screenplay went to Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inisherin. So I think just to start out, what was Venice like? I want to hear all about it because I've never been. How was it? I had been to Venice before, so I think revisiting the city in a different capacity was interesting. It's also separate from like Venice Venice. It's on the Lido, so you take a water ferry over and that's where this strip of theaters is or like makeshift theater, the Palo Biennale where we were mostly at this 1400 seat theater that is basically a tent that sometimes has air conditioning and not as comfortable seats as we <laughs> determined oh, since no. we had a couple <laughs> movies the last day in that main theater, the Sala Grande, where they have the red carpet and you see all of the photos being taken. So it was cool to see it in that way. We were there for at least six hours a day. I was only there for three days of movies and Bennett was there for two more. So he has a few more movies that he'll get to talk about alone. But it was a really cool experience. Bennett, you said earlier, like the messiness of the movies friends have also asked me like oh was it worth it and like going for three days is like so quick but even though I think that most of the movies I saw were I guess I was just underwhelmed 
overall by 11 movies. And I had a really high one, which was Santo Mare. And there was a lot in the middle, but there was a lot that was not good. But even that to me, I'm like, it's an experience. You go to this festival, you're surrounded by people from all over the world watching these premieres. And I think that's a cool experience, no matter how bad a movie is, because you also have crowd reactions and things happening that normally don't. I mean, maybe they do in an AMC. (laughs) Maybe it's not all that different, but (laughs) I still had a really great time. And I'm glad Bennett and I finally got to go and do this. Yeah, this is something that Nick and I have been planning for a very long time. So very happy that it actually got to work out. And even though it was only a couple days, we got to do it together. So uh, that was great. I would say from from my perspective, I live in the Midwest. So particularly getting to a film festival other than local or regional fests, this was by far my biggest jump to, you know, the international film festival stage and attending something that has this level of world premiere happening. I think even I feel like New York Fest, which you two go to pretty regularly at this point, that there's a couple world premieres there, but it's mostly things that have premiered elsewhere. So going to somewhere that has every film premiering there is a world premiere for the most part. I think there's a handful of of things in kind of sidebar categories that are not premieres. But that was a unique experience of going somewhere even as a civilian. Like we didn't go with in, you know, we didn't go to press and industry screenings. We were going to all the public screenings. That even going there, you were entering the film as reviews dropped, basically. So unless you were quick on the Twitter button to read a review while the like festival intro ran, you didn't know what you were about to see or what anyone had really thought about it already. Um, so I think that was the most unique part of going to somewhere like Venice is just being really on the front line of forming an opinion without any influence of what others have said or what others have have processed before you. Yeah, you don't have anything to really cloud your judgment going in. It's just a completely new experience. And did you all feel like you had that festival fever or there was some sort of curve to the way you were experiencing these movies or just processing your own reactions did I don't know the reactions of the crowd like weigh on your opinions did you feel that from going to Venice I feel that more so in New York than I did here which is weird I don't think there's a reason to it but I also didn't feel influenced by anything there was like a little overlap since we saw it in the like secondary public theater an hour after the real premiere and then press had happened earlier in the day. So the embargo is basically over maybe once the initial screening starts. So in between movies, I remember hearing like you texted me like blonde reviews are up and I didn't want to read anything, but it was right before a movie started. So there was a little wiggle room, but I mean, maybe certain movies like half a star variation, but I was very like, that was not good. I was ready to boo. It might be different from New York. The Venice crowd is fairly silent throughout the film until the wow. end. There's okay. there's no, I mean, we were also seeing it in the public screening. So mm-hmm. I know in the large premiere screenings with the cast and crew there, then there's, you know, applause mid movie. But at the public screenings, other than sporadic laughter, there was... You could not tell how the audience was feeling until the very end. 
when there was always applause. It was just how much applause there was. And then mm -hmm. this applies to some movies that we'll talk about later, but someone two rows in front of us starts applauding and you hear, no, no, <laughs> don't clap. Boo. Boo. Was, there was immediate applause after Blonde and that threw me so far off. I feel like, Sophia, your experience with Cannes was different. Maybe, like, French audiences were more vocal, mm -hmm. I feel like. Yeah, the French audiences, I was going to say, were very different than the way you're describing Italians. And I had some screenings that were premieres, but most of my screenings were just, like, general pass holders. But the French people would talk to each other during the movies. Like, it was a <laughs> sort of disruptive environment. <laughs> And would be very vocal. So my first screening at Cannes last year was Annette. And I knew how people were feeling throughout the entire movie. Hmm. Which I think is a movie that elicits a lot of reaction. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, very different. Which is funny. I think another thing that was interesting about Venice, maybe different from Cannes and maybe more similar to other fests, is that although it's a lot of world premieres of international films, there are ways that it's also a very local festival in that if you look kind of down the list of the films in competition and in the like horizon sidebar which is one of the major sidebars a lot of it are italian films made for italian audiences that will not get released outside of italy which was also a very interesting thing to see because we would go from you know we'd see the sun and then we'd go to a film that was opening in italy two days later afterwards and probably won't open elsewhere clearly for different audiences of how successful it was like a few of them we watched that were italian movies that were like yeesh this we don't think this is a good movie and there's no way this is meant to be meaningful to people outside of italy so that was also interesting that i don't think i expected that at from venice like on, on this kind of large of a fest I, I don't hear things that can that are french films for french audiences or like berlin you know kind of the major european ones that is unique like i hadn't thought about that either because i think in my head the way i think of venice is just this very glamorous red carpet festival where you have like all of the biggest movies of the year but not like just the biggest movies of the year some of course go to telluride or tiff or other places but when you say world premiere i think of like the glitziest most glamorous films they go to venice so i never think about like a little italian film just going there and premiering a few days before it's public release mm -hmm. in italy and i don't think other festivals really do that very much i mean even new york here they don't just show movies that are going to come out in a few days in new york in like a little section and can they don't do that either so hmm, that's cool yeah. though yeah it, it was cool in that there were some things I was like, oh, this is probably the only chance I will ever be able to see this movie. So that was nice, uh -huh. even though none of them ended up being very good. I think that's what makes the festival experience fun, though, too, is like, yes, you're going for a lot of these big movies. And if maybe you're there for the entire week or however long the fest is, like, especially if you are press, you're seeing everything. And at that point, it's a little different. But when you go and see a mix of like really big movies like The Sun and Blonde and The Eternal Daughter, even that is pretty big. And then you go from that to Bennett, you saw more, but French and Italian films like you're describing, I feel like it makes it a much more unique experience. And it's not like, oh my God, I'm seeing all these movies that are going to come out and be in the awards conversation. And then everyone will have seen them 
come the next few months. But it's like, it's cool that some of those, like Sichita, no one may ever see. And that's kind of like you have your own special movie, regardless of how good or bad it is. You're experiencing a different culture. And that's what I also like about these international festivals is the people and seeing how different festivals curate their list of movies and like what makes it and why. And we were there in the back half of the fest too. I think that's important to kind of like frame the conversation. So I was there for the whole second week and Nick came for the the majority of that second week. So we didn't see, and, and Venice kind of typically front loads their roster. So we didn't see Tar or Bardo or White Noise or some of those the kind of the first couple of days heavy hitters. And we were worried about that when we were planning the fest that we knew when we would be there and the schedule doesn't come out until two weeks before the fest starts. So we thought we were going to get just a bunch of stuff we've never heard of and miss out on the you know big, exciting stuff. But this year they did definitely space out a lot of the Hollywood premieres, like The Sun, Eternal Daughter, Blonde, um, even The Whale was a little later than usual. So we did get to see a bunch of those, which was exciting and and um, Banshees of Inishir. And so I think that affected our festival experience as well, that we were definitely seeing the lighter half of the programming. Mm -hmm. Like looking back at last year, I looked through the entire list of movies from the second week and the biggest one was happening, that French abortion movie. And I was like, if this is the highest movie, which ended up winning and was finally released this year, but I was like, we're in for a bumpy ride if it's like going to be all international, like nothing awardsy, which again is fine. And it's a different kind of festival at that point. But I was glad that things were kind of spaced out this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the fun things, too, about that is you can go into a festival like Cannes or like Venice and not really know or have some sort of preconceived idea of what the awards movies will be. And then months later... They come out of nowhere and you'll get like the worst person in the world. When I saw that, I had no idea it was going to be anything. Like I loved the movie when mm. I saw it and I was like, it would be great if this was something. But yeah, so you don't really know. And that's a fun thing. But do you guys have um, like from the first half of the festival? What are you most excited to eventually see that you missed? My top two that I'm seeing in New York are Tar and Bones and All so excited i'm trying to find a way to see all the beauty and the bloodshed too because didn't it win somewhere else just here so far but it is the only movie that played like the only big movie that played all four fests venice toronto telluride new york okay i know it's also the opening night i believe for new fest which is also happening in new york so it is here a few times and i'm hoping i get to see it a very different kind of movie, and I'm excited that that one, since Saint-Omer got the jury prize, which is basically runner-up. Should we talk about movies? Yeah. Bennett, do you want to start with what you saw before I got there? Namely, The Whale. Let's start there. Oh, yeah. So I saw The Whale after traveling for about 24 hours, <laughs> landing, <laughs> delays, lost luggage, and then somehow made it to... Like made it to my hotel, got on a water bus, was alone in Venice and made it to Polito and actually missed the first half of that double bill, which I was going to say, I'm, I really am excited to eventually see uh, Limencita, 
It's a Penelope Cruz movie that I was supposed to see, but missed because of my luggage. So I made it to the whale and made it through the whale, which is a movie that fall, I think falls into what we were saying about the Venice crowd, not giving away how they're feeling during a movie. And only when the lights come up or the credits roll, do we know kind of how everyone reacted because I was sitting there and the whole time I was shaking my head. I was uttering, no, not that, no, oh my God, <laughs> just as it went. And then the lights come up and it is rapturous applause, audible sobs, every Italian person standing up and wiping their faces, like tears from their chin because they were so overcome by this movie. Since it has premiered in other places, and I think it played in Toronto, it sounds like I'm, I might be among the couple people in the minority about it, where I would say that every, from my perspective, everything that you may have feared about the film going into it came true to me of the possible issues and uh, insensitivities that it has towards um, particularly obese people. I, I think that a lot of people are caught up in their love of Brendan Fraser and the movie ends in a 10 to 15 minute emotional surge like Darren Aronofsky tends to do where the emotion and the filmmaking and the score just keep increasing in intensity and it just peaks before like a cut to black or a fade to white, you know, his, his typical ending that is very strong emotionally. And I would say almost got me, but I was a little too uh, not on board the whole time for it to be taken with it. So I think that people are getting sent out of the theater on an emotional high and their love of Brendan Fraser. And that is kind of what is leading into people's reactions today. Because I think that there's been some, some critics have written well thought out reviews of why it has some issues. I think particularly Richard Lawson at Vanity Fair kind of wrote out everything that I was agreeing with that I just don't think that it's coming from a good place ultimately, which is unfortunate. Richard Lawson, it's funny you brought him up because I listened to Little Gold Men, the Vanity mm -hmm. Fair Awards podcast, and he was talking about it on that. And he shared similar feelings to you where he thought that people wouldn't like it based on the way that he reacted to it. And then he saw, he was like, oh wait, I'm in the minority on this one. People are really responding emotionally to it. So, oh, I am not an Aronofsky fan, typically. There are some outliers, some movies that I really like of his. Recently, Mother, right. which is the one that everyone hates. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to feel about this one. I'm going to approach it with caution. And I know I texted you and told you my fears of this movie. So yeah. I'm worried. I will give, like, I think Brendan Fraser's great. I think that he okay. is bringing... A, a real sensitivity and empathy to his performance that the movie thinks that it's viewing the character with. Mm. But I think that the filmmaking and his performance are in conflict in that. Um, but I can see that he kind of put in the work and is doing a really good job trying to portray it. Putting you on the spot, do you think he's going to get nominated for Best Actor? I do. 
you know, I don't, I don't think there's five people who are like more likely to get nominated from him than him, I guess I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very artistic film that is tough. And I talked to you, Sophia, a little bit about how I need an English teacher to break down some of it for me. <laughs> because a lot of it's very allegorical and it's a lot about Moby Dick. Uh, there's a lot of Moby Dick oh subtext. So if there's a, like, if you need to read a book before you see the movie, read Moby Dick that there's some stuff there that I am missing that maybe thematically would help my viewing. But uh, I could see it being the type of movie, at least from my perspective, it's like, oh, they could get nominated in spite of the film. Like, even though the film is too esoteric or too difficult, then they can get in. And we'll talk about one of those performances later, but he will probably get in. And I would be fine with him being. I would not be fine with Sadie Sink getting in. I'm going to say that right away. She acts like she's on Netflix. I'm sure she has other skills, but she is a, I don't see what other people are seeing with her. Okay, what about Hong Chao? Hong Chao is also very good. I love her as an actress. I don't think that this performance is the one. She she is probably the one who's, other than Brenda Fraser, who's like trying to fight back against what the film is doing. Um, so I think people are drawing, drawn to her from that. I think performance in general, everyone is directed to an 11 and it is just yelling the whole time. So I couldn't really kind of handle any of it, including Hong Chao's character, except she does have, she has a couple moments that are where she's able to, to do what she does best in kind of her more quiet, very sensitive moments. But Speaking of best actor, you saw The Banshees of Inishirin. I did. I really liked The Banshees of Inisherin. I think oh, good. it's a movie that grew on me. When I first saw it, I liked it. I was respectful of it. And I felt like, oh, I have fondness for what I just saw. It was also, you know, I had just seen a movie before and was seeing one after. It was, I was also acclimating to my first kind of experience of the film fest of seeing so many movies in quick succession. But And with that, I think Banshees grew on me overnight to the point that that night when I was going to bed, I was just thinking about it and kind of getting emotional about it. It is a much more thoughtful and emotional movie than anything that Martin McDonough has made recently, for sure. People are comparing it to his plays a lot more than to his films. And I haven't seen or read any of his plays, but I think that makes sense in the way that Three Billboards was kind of angry comedy. I think of um, Banshees as kind of sad comedy or like melancholy comedy. There aren't really punchlines. It's just a dramatic kind of sad script about these very lonely people who are trying to figure out all kind of all on their own ways to escape their loneliness. But he's able to really neatly like inject his humor into it. In way, like that was a, that was a screening where the crowd laughed while watching it while Mm -hmm. crying a couple seconds later but it it is a quiet and very like melancholic film that is really well performed i think colin farrell's really really good he's just doing sad puppy colin farrell the whole time which is oh wow you know like his (laughs) eyebrows are like pointed together the whole time it's big beautiful fake eyebrows and it's it's great Brendan Gleeson is also really good. I, he's one that awards wise, they'll probably put him in supporting, which is I think kind of fraud, but that one's kind of iffy, but he's also 
he's also great. I'm so excited to see this one. I'm mad it's not coming to New York because oh, this it's is, weird. After I saw the trailer, I really wanted to see it. And you think he's probably going to be in for actor as well? I, I feel like as much as we've talked about him, like with After Yang and now this and the award, it like solidifies that he's maybe the second nomination. Yeah, I think the the drum's been beating for him for a few years with his work with Yorgos Lanthimos. I feel like when he was in The Lobster, there's a lot of people calling for kind of this sort of like similar, very different character, but similar kind of like sad, lonely Colin Farrell and how good he was at that, that with humor injected, that I feel like there's sort of a through line in that performance to to Banshees. But even, even the cursed Fantastic Beasts franchise, where Colin Farrell is in the first movie and then he gets magically replaced by Johnny Depp mid-movie and how upset everyone was with that replacement that I feel like that even that helps his case mm-hmm. yeah so we skipped over a full day of your experience in which don't worry darling <laughs> spitgate happened I mean experiencing this spitgate. on Twitter was literally like January 6th all over again it was just like scrolling and refreshing like what is happening right now like in real time we are experiencing something obviously in a much less serious manner (laughs) for movie patrons that was wild but you saw this as well and kind of just like laughed it off so Spitgate was one of those real like not a thing in in the room or on the island only exists on Twitter (laughs) mode because I was I mean I guess I was Spitgate happened while I was between movies you know running to scarf down pizza between a couple screenings about to see Don't Worry Darling and then I had one afterwards and it wasn't until I got back to my hotel room at like 2 a.m when I was catching up on Twitter and your texts, Nick, and you were like, did you see the spit? And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But all the videos of the red carpet and how they were all playing this dancing game and Mm -hmm. not looking at each other. And, oh, like you could feel the tension. You could cut it with a knife. And that was just so fun to see just from having heard all these stories for months from this cursed production. But Florence was there. She was the high point, apparently. And I'm excited to see it for her this week. And we'll, we'll be talking about it on our next episode, too. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> I will, What I put in my, my letterbox review is, and again, this was before Spitgate was a thing when everyone was more concerned. Well, I guess Spitgate concerns Harry Styles, but uh, very much, but it was more like right after the clip had been released of one and a half minutes of him and Florence in the scene and everyone was freaking out about his accent. I will say going into the movie, Harry Styles is not the one, or the, he's not the issue. He is the one of the least of the concerns. Wow. <laughs> He's not like, you know, the pinnacle or the the best part of it, but mm-hmm. there's other things to, to talk about. Do you feel like the movie itself is as cursed as the production? Ugh. Without all of the rigmarole of, of the whole press circuit around it, it could have just premiered and happened and there would have been discourse, but it would have just come and gone. So 
I think watching the movie is a fairly cursed experience anyway, though, because I just don't think it's good. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, you can, you'll see for yourself, but I think you can watch and tell that it might not have been a well-oiled machine on set. So from here, finally I arrive and we have our 11 movies. So, I mean, there's a lot, we're not going to talk about everything. We can go through a list and just mention them all, but did your favorite Bennett come from the first part so far or what we haven't talked about yet of the entire festival? The two best that I saw one from before Nick got there, which is a movie called other people's children that is directed by Rebecca Zlotowski, who is a French filmmaker who's made a couple other movies that I have heard of over the years. They've had big premieres at major festivals. This includes grand central with Lea Sadeau and Planetarium with Natalie Portman. And I think she was at Cannes a couple of years ago with uh, this movie called An Easy Girl. And she's been in all these major fests, but has not really gotten a lot of acclaim for them until, at least from my perspective, this movie, Other People's Children, which is a, it's not groundbreaking in many ways, but it is a lovely, lovely film. Uh, starring uh, Virginie Afira. Uh, might have butchered that, but people may know her as the star of Benedetta and kind of a like rapidly ascending French film star as this woman who is in her uh, maybe like late 30s, early 40s, who's never had kids and never necessarily wanted to have kids, um, but it's more just that it's never happened for her. And then she enters a, a, in a relationship with a man who has a child from a previous relationship. And it's about her experience in that relationship, uh, both with that, uh, that man, her boyfriend, and with that boyfriend's child. Um, and kind of her reconciling how they interact together versus her own desires and her own life and her family history. And it's a really, really lovely kind of romantic drama. I think Virginie is absolutely incredible. I think if Kate Blanchett were not in the fest, I would have loved for her to get the Volpe Cup for Best Actress. I think it's the only movie that I cried to at the fest. It's very lovely and I really recommend that people find it. I don't know how wide of a release or you know push or you know marketing it's going to get but it's called other people's children and i definitely recommend it it sounds like a movie i would really love i think so it's just it's really bittersweet as a movie as i was thinking about it in the days afterwards i drew a lot of parallels in it uh from it to the worst person in the world it's a different woman in a different phase of her life but it is sort of a similar type of film that is just looking at this kind of like section of this woman's life and finding herself and thinking about her past and what she wants and where that fits into what she has and what she can get. So I certainly recommend it. it sounds lovely. Yeah. A surprise. Like that was a, I, I had no expectations for that one. That was one that I didn't think would amount to much, but it was one of my faves. And then my second favorite that I saw with Nick after, after he arrived is another French film called Saint-Omer. This is directed by Alice Diop, who my understanding is that she is primarily a documentarian previously, and this is her narrative feature debut. So this movie is 
largely a courtroom drama that I think you don't necessarily realize is going to be a as much of a courtroom drama as it is uh, when it gets started. There's kind of a there's a bit of a prologue going into it before you kind of settle into the, the actual courtroom. But it is extremely confident in what it's going to do. It seems like a very simple film, but I think it takes a lot of risks in its simplicity where you realize that as you're watching a scene that there are very long takes and you don't, I think as it goes along, I was saying there was like, oh, we're staying here. We are, we are watching this, you know, for example, this testimony and it is just going to be about the writing and this performance. And we are just holding on, on, you know, this performer as it goes, but it becomes this really interesting exercise in empathy between uh, someone defending themselves and the audience and the audience members in the courtroom and kind of ties between the lives of uh, this woman who is on trial and another protagonist that we followed kind of outside of the courtroom and how they can empathize with each other based on just their lived experience and their upbringing and culture. Nick, I think I was surprised that you liked it as much as you did, but I know that you were very into it as you went along. Honestly, I'm surprised too. I think if this were a movie I was watching at home, I would have lost interest within 45 minutes just because it is really hard. It's not meandering, but it's very slow. But I think that's what surprised me in the beginning too is the choices that Diop was making and her direction. She also won Best First Feature at the Venice Festival for this. And I think she totally should have because you do get the intro, but then you're in this courtroom and you're in this scene for 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, wow, we are doing this. And her choice of who we watch and the POV and the depth of which we watch them changes. And I think that's fascinating, like how the camera moves. It's very intentional. And I think that like really kept me. We didn't realize until afterwards that it was shot by Clara Maffin, the cinematographer who shot Atlantics and Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Spencer. Yes, that's what I know yeah. from recently. Yeah, And a few other stuff that she's becoming a real name. But I, I know as I was watching, I was like, wow, this is there's not a lot of camera work happening. We're not moving much. These shots are beautifully composed mm-hmm. because, uh, again, I think that adds to you were just you were just locked onto a shot in, in a courtroom drama with one character on screen for a very long take and i think it's still visually very interesting it's very thought-provoking you're putting yourself in the mind of this mother and you know it's in, i think it did help that this was the first movie of the day too it's not really funny but we got two movies about motherhood and about being a woman back to back we saw blonde right after this and this was the superior film when you leave the movie you're thinking about this trial because the logistics of it don't really matter, but it's how it plays into the characters and like how the events happened and what they're trying to get at. It is a courtroom drama, but it's also not that. It's like a character study. And I think all of these things were surprising me and I didn't know what to expect at all. I had heard, you know, good reviews, but didn't look at what it was about, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I was very happily surprised. This was also my favorite movie of the festival. From here, it drops off pretty far. 
but I'm very happy with this. And this is premiering at New York. Anyone who can see it wherever it does premiere, if it's at other festivals, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And it was just acquired by Super, which is Neon's boutique label. It's shortlisted as one of France's finalists for their submission to the Oscars. So I'm excited to see it. I feel like reading just the log line of the movie and hearing that both of you liked it is very promising for me as well. Probably my next favorite was this French movie from the last day called Our Ties. This is one of those movies that probably won't get any release or like maybe an art house release in certain cities in the U.S. But again, a a character study of this family that is going through turmoil after one of the character's traumatic incidents. So it's again, it's just making you think about how something so simple can turn into such heartbreak and such a mess. But it's family that brings you back together. Also on that last day, we saw No Bears. And I love that Panahi got the special jury prize. That was like one of the more chilling moments of the festival because we were in the Sala Grande for that. And some of the cast came in and the family... And there was a seat with his name on a chair and it was left empty. And, you know, as the spotlight is on them and you're clapping, you know, you see him on screen. He plays himself in sort of this somewhat autobiographical experience or, you know, like he is imprisoned and that's how he feels in this movie. So that was that was really touching, especially after and having seen it. And then you see it again that he's not there. Another one I would recommend, I think this is also at new york it is in new york too i'll add it to my list i keep adding more movies to my list as you have (laughs) seen them in venice because like no bears and santo mare were not as high on my list as like tar or bones and all these bigger movies but i feel like it's important to see these smaller international Mm -hmm. films too and with something like no bears it kind of one of the many draws to see it is that it has like the opposite of a stamp of approval from its country to see it you know like it's probably the last film that iran is going to submit um because they have imprisoned its director so i think that that's also was a very interesting room to be in that felt very emotional that this is panahi's first film to come out since his imprisonment he's been under house arrest for a number of years and uh was banned i think uh, Some time over 10 years ago, he was banned from making films for 20 years, but I've seen his last five films that have come out in the last decade. So he, you know, still always finds a way. I think ever since his film, This Is Not a Film, was the story of Cannes, like 2012 or something, when it was smuggled out of Iran on a flash drive, baked into a cake in like a suitcase to the Cannes Film Festival. This was like immediately after his filmmaking ban. And I've watched all his films that have come out since then. So I think this is another very worthy addition to to that list of, of his films that he's made in the past decade. And particularly poignant because I think while you're watching it, you can feel him at his most scared of the government and most uh, kind of uh, paying attention to his place in in Iran and the borders of Iran, particularly. Particularly appointed that after he made this, he was arrested. Do we want to talk about some movies that you didn't like? Where do we want to <laughs> Where start? Where do we start? Yeah. The great thing is that it's a lot of the big ones. 
So, so which is just, I was so surprised. Like the biggest movie that had to have been in my like top three anticipated for this award season is clearly my worst movie of the year. I know. (laughs) And to experience that again, like I would have never expected that. And what movie is that? That is Florian Zeller's follow up to the father, the son. It's wretched. I I need to know, I guess because when The Father came out and when I had watched The Father, there were things about that movie that I loved. Anthony Hopkins' performance being the big one. And there were things about that movie that I found like distractingly not cinematic. So I I approached it I think as one that it wasn't in my like top 10 of the year, but I definitely like had a soft spot for it, I think as a vehicle for Anthony Hopkins and just that performance and what it was and what it said. So I think for me, The Sun, I wouldn't call it one of my most anticipated movies of the year, but I certainly was curious about how well it would play after The Father and if Florian Zeller could do it again. You know, if it was if it was a movie that would have outstanding performances and something to say. So hearing things like, half a star or it's wretched i just i guess why what was so bad about it because i need to see this movie now now it's on my most anticipated list (laughs) i guess to to get out of the way cinematically it is not an improvement if anything it is worse cinematically than the father specifically in i think it's cinematography we texted about this. Mm-hmm. Florian Zeller desperately needs a new cinematographer. The lighting. lighting. Oh it's so Lord. harsh. Coming <laughs> from like three quarter degree underneath angles. And I, I would say if you lose all the craft from the father, like the interest of its editing and its production design that were both Oscar nominated, mm-hmm. those have no thematic meaning to this movie. So there's no interest there. So take those out and it is about the same craft wise as as the father and then if you can talk about the rest of it so i took notes during these movies which was also kind of fun and i can go back um i ended up probably writing the most about the sun it was just like line after line of like what is happening seeing any review with praise i immediately discount anything that they're saying people are like oh the performances were so moving and they're giving their best performance ever there are just so many fundamental problems with this movie and it starts with the writing and I was surprised by that because both the father and the son are adaptations of his plays and I thought the father like it wasn't distracting or bad like the screenplay was good and it got nominated it won oh yeah there you go things I don't remember so I guess we also had expectations just from that not knowing anything about the Mm -hmm. movie but you know from his previous material and wins so not only do the characters not have chemistry, it's that I feel like they're delivering each line as like a standalone moment. There's like no flow. But then also the the plot to it, you know, it talks about mental health and depression and suicide is so rudimentary. Like this is a movie that could have been written in the 90s or before then because it's how people in the past treated these issues. And today, there's so many more resources, and there's different dialogue happening, and things are more open, and this movie doesn't acknowledge any of that, 
which I think is where some of the discourse of, oh, it creates this open discussion and this really important dialogue of parents and their children and why parents are loving this movie or reviewers that have seen it, you know, that they're getting very emotional is because they feel for their kids and sometimes you don't connect with them as these characters do in the movie. But I just don't think how it was done was done in the right way. It feels like it takes a step back instead of trying to help something. Mm -hmm. And just because the movie doesn't end with any hope, like that's not what I'm describing. Like it's the discourse of the film that is wrong, which just added to like how much it hurt watching this movie. So it's like the movie was bad. I felt like all of the actors were bad. The reasoning is bad. The direction is bad. So it's like everything coming together. It's not like one thing marred my vision. Some movies are just terrible. I mean, yeah. It could so just that, be that. this was a big flop for me. I mean, I have Zen McGrath. I mean, I have a note saying kid playing Nicholas crying or laughing question mark. No chemistry, poor editing, awkward. I think, Sophia, you said some movies are just bad. This feels like a a movie that if you, like, tilted it sideways, like, could be a good movie. Like, it's not a, like, incompetently made movie. Everything is mm-hmm. purposeful. Everyone seems to be doing as they were directed and as they were tasked to do this. And everything seems on purpose. But everything about it is really bad. It's a, yeah, throwing the word bad yeah. around. The characters, like Nick's saying, like they're from the '90s. It's like they haven't existed on Earth for the past thirty years. Is is what it's like. It's mm-hmm. like they don't have access to the internet and don't understand how the world works. Is is how they interact with each other. But it's a modern story. But it's set today. So it Let is it contemporary. contemporary. Like it's set right. now. It's just okay. as though no one involved has has been aware of any developments in mental health care or how to talk about mental health or anything like that, both the adults and the children in the film. And to the point that I, I think that the emotional impact that it's having on people is, I would be curious statistically how many of those people are parents because there's probably a, there's a core emotion that it's tapping into about parenting a troubled child that I would understand could you know, you can look past everything else and just be emotionally impacted by it. However, I think ultimately it's not a movie about mental illness. It's about, it thinks it's about mental illness, but it's more about completely inept parenting. It thinks it's examining this family dealing with mental illness, but it's about how this family does not understand how to deal with mental illness, but it thinks it's dealing with it. I don't know. Mm. It's tough. I, so one of my favorite movies is Ordinary People. And I feel like, I'm going to appreciate that movie more after I see the sun. I think so. Most likely. I mean, it's not going to go down. (laughs) It's also talking about divorce and how that affects a child. But it's like overly simplistic, but also overly ambitious. The final 25 minutes of it in the way that, like I was saying, the whale kind of surges emotionally and you go out on a high. The last 25 minutes of The Sun are sadistic towards the audience, is my opinion. Nick and I were clutching each other, desperate for it to end. It is way too long, also. It's 30 minutes over long. Oh, my God. Sadistic is a choice. And I don't know if it meant to. 
but it in the outcome mm. it seems like it is it really wants to hurt the audience Ooh. is how it hit me at least i mean we were we were laughing at how ridiculous it was everyone around us was crying but nick and i yeah. nick and i were just laughing in disbelief at the whole thing there were some people around us laughing, which I think we could identify yeah. with, which was fun. Uh, the people in front of us. Yeah, I wrote down also quotes. I'm a doctor. Trust me. <laughs> Love will not be enough. It sounds like Google Translate, I actually, think is what it sort of reminds me of. That's been mentioned. I've seen some some people talk about how it's like making an American film in English. I mean, the father was in English, but what, it's possible that there were too many language or cultural barriers for Zeller to make a film set in America, that that may have had an impact on. I mean, that's fine. Have it in your native language. I mean, I'll still watch it. The father, this just makes the father look like a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And I didn't dislike the father. I liked it a lot. But if there's anybody who doesn't have to see the son and like, isn't dying to see it, then just go rewatch the father and you'll be a much happier person. We did get some questions submitted, and they're all sort of in the same vein. Is the sun DOA? Do you think the thoughts out of Venice and Tiff have ruined the sun's Oscar chances? Did you anticipate the sun getting extremely divisive responses? So Oscar-wise, like, what do you what do you guys think? Is there a group, like parents or maybe older voters, who will like this movie? Are the reviews killing it? What do you think? I think that it will not be as successful as The Father in terms of awards. I think that there will still be a contingent of voters and viewers who get emotionally taken by it. There definitely were in our crowd. And I think that the slim best actor field this year will, like Hugh Jackman being part of that, will keep the film in conversation. I would be aghast if it did as well as The Father. I was happy that Hugh wasn't overdoing Hugh as he usually does. Like he usually starts at a 10. He probably started at like a seven or an eight and didn't go to an 11, which was nice to see. But him being nominated for Les Mis, I don't think you want a nomination for this. I feel like Les Mis was better. I was going to ask if The Greatest Showman, which I hated, was better. I was just going to mention, it was like, this is making me really excited to cover that on After Dark. I can't wait. <laughs> I mean, justice for uh, Hugh Jackman in Bad Education, the HBO oh, yeah. film that should have been his Oscar. He would have competed against um, Anthony Hopkins, but he's not the problem with this movie, but it's not giving him the space to have the performance that he should be having in this film. Like he's not breaking through in, in the opposite of what I mentioned with Brendan Fraser, who I could really latch onto as a performance and I could see what he was doing. I think Hugh Jackman is overwhelmed by the direction of this movie. I mean, he's not the relief from the movie no. either. No, I would say that's Vanessa Kirby. Like even in her, she's a very supporting role. I liked her the most, and even she is, like, battling to stay on solid ground through this movie. And she just barely holds on. Laura Dern, you won for Marriage Story. You do not need to get nominated she, for the, this. Okay, the problem is that Laura Dern has multiple Oscar clips. She has a couple big scenes <laughs> that... And it, I, I would have only said one, but when Nick and I walked out of the movie, we both said, oh, Laura's Oscar clip, and we 
each said a different scene. So she she has a pretty baby role. There's one that's earlier on before I before we realized how bad it was gonna get that I was like, oh, she's she's clinching a nomination with this scene. But then it just it goes so far south that I can I can see her and Hugh they'll stay in the conversation for a while, I think. Yikes. Yeah. I mean see it. And Anthony Hopkins people will probably be asking before they see it, like, can he get another nomination since he won for the other Zeller film? But his role he's there for two minutes. He's great. He's the best part of it. There's just no way. He is, but his dialogue is awful. It's just mm. so inflammatory to the point that I, I didn't need it. I mean it's a key relationship, but what's there is again just so simplified to the point that he's making a point like i get it but mm -mm. well again i'm i'm so excited to see this just (laughs) just because i need to know for myself and just experience it even if it is sadistic i want to know it's coming out november 11th here um it's not playing any other film festivals i'm going to as far as i know so I will be taking myself to the movie theater to see this, and you will both hear my reactions immediately when I exit. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, the other movie that only fared like maybe a quarter of a star better than this for me, which we've all seen now, is Mm -hmm. Blonde. Let's do it. (laughs) It's time. I guess I want to know what your experience was in the theater before I tell you all about mine, because mine was sort of like a research project for me i was not shocked but just kind of grossed out by my crowd Mm -hmm. so yeah we saw it with a seemingly sold out crowd in the public theater then in the big tent it's a long movie there were a lot of people and they did not have the air conditioning on high so punishing other than being hot people were fine i you know not really making a ruckus or anything as it went along. And then about 90% of the way into the movie, when there's been a lot of cumulative, very intense scenes, particularly near the end, we started hearing yells from the back of the theater in Italian of people yelling for a doctor and for medical attention. And it kind of stalled for a second and then re-upped and a lot of people were yelling for medical help. And it seems like either the heat or the intensity of the film, presumably those, maybe other things, but someone had to be medically evacuated out of the theater from it. And I am sure that it was, at least in some part, because of the film. Because it came after the NC-17 scene and then the very bloody scene. And then we hear it and like the movie's still happening. There are 20 minutes left. And it's scary. Like, you hear that. You don't know what's happening. You hear people like, oh, someone threw up. Someone passed out. But there's also no point in, like, everybody looking at them. And they needed to have people there, attendants there, watching the theater. And they did for the following movie. It's like, great, you finally showed up and put the air on. But, like, they just weren't ready for that to happen, which you don't want to happen. But, you know, it's it's always a potential. So I think... Like, eventually they came and escorted the person out. And at that point, you know, it's like, this movie just needs to end. It was a weird moment of the crowd who had been going through this very intense movie for 
two and a half hours at that point. We could, we knew we were near the end. And then there was this like semi distraction disrupt disruption because the movie kept playing and but mm -hmm. everyone turned around to help or figure out what was going on and mm -hmm. then it kept going so you felt kind of like a big like exhale while also kind of like an inhale about something else about some other stressful thing happening and then we tried to like turn back to the movie to let it finish and it was a weird experience particularly at the end when it's at its most intense yeah. So I saw this movie on Friday night at the Paris Theater here in New York, which is owned by Netflix now. So they show all of the Netflix movies that come out. And I went with my sister and another friend and we get to the theater about 15, 20 minutes before it starts. And there's a line outside to get in. We were the only women in line for this movie, which was jarring and unsurprising in a bad way. And I looked at my sister and I said, like, I feel like we're in one of those scenarios, like in Taxi Driver, where he goes to like a porn theater. Like, that's sort of what it felt like we were lining up for. So that was just the energy that was in the air for that. It was mostly men. We get into the theater and more women came in, like as, you know, it was getting ready to start. But I would say if I had to just eyeball it, and this was a nearly sold out show too for the Paris, and it's a pretty big theater. I would guess that it was about 80% men in the crowd. And as the movie kept going, women were walking out, mm. whether it was to leave or for to go to the bathroom or to take a minute. I'm not sure what it was. So I read the book and Bennett, I know you mm -hmm. read the book. So we brought, I think, a lot into it. Maybe Nick, you had different expectations for it, but I my expectations weren't necessarily high. But I was prepared, I think, in some ways for what was to come. I feel like I, I knew at least how heightened everything could be. But when you're reading a book versus seeing a film, there's only so much, I think, in your mind when you're reading a book. Your mind will protect you from seeing certain things or visualizing certain things in specific ways. And... I have to admit, when I read the book, I, I thought it was gripping. Like, the the way that Joyce Carol Oates wrote this novel, I was just engrossed in it. And I feel like Andrew Dominic was too. And he very much, I think, understood the mood and the tone of the novel. But some of the visual choices and its lack of cohesion, aside from everything that's happening to Marilyn in this movie. I think it just, it didn't come together for me as a complete film. And I think what works so well about the novel, and people can have issues with the book, that's, I understand that, and why you would, because it's a fictionalized account of a real person. But I think what Joyce Carol Oates does in the book is she takes Marilyn Monroe and sort of uses her persona as an avatar for the female experience in Hollywood and Dominic portrayed Marilyn he didn't dig that deep into her character in the script and it felt very one note to me like he was only interested in showing her as a victim I read this review in Slant Magazine and the author said he'll break her kneecap just to force her to be carried and I feel like that sums up how Dominic viewed Marilyn in this movie. 
and I, I, I will warn anyone before they see this movie. This is a grueling, grueling watch that I can't say I would recommend to anyone. I agree with, especially what you said at the end of, it's a movie that as a book reader and I, in all of my, my inner trying to figure out how I feel about this movie, I've tried to stay away from being a smug book reader about it. It's not like a, well, actually in the book, that's not the right the point. But I think that if you have read the book, then I think seeing the movie is a interesting extension and kind of exercise to take after having read the book to see how someone could try to adapt it with all the caveats that you've mentioned, Sophia. But I would say if you either did not like the book or like couldn't read the book or didn't read the book, then I would also not recommend the movie. For me, it took a lot of work to read the book. It's a brick. Good seven, 800 pages. Took me a few months. And the subject matter is tough. The film does, for the most part, follow the plot of, of what's in the book. So that piece, you still need to be able to get through in the book. But you've kind of like done the work to get, to, to get through the whole novel. And you have maybe enjoyed how that story was told or that perspective. And then you can go into the film and only need to deal with everything that Dominic is doing with it rather than the whole plot, the whole story and wrapping your head around that and accepting it. And then what Dominic is choosing to do with it cinematically mm-hmm. that I think it's, it's too difficult to do. And I don't blame anyone for not liking it. And I had very mixed feelings about it. I think that there, there are, like you said, there are things about the film that I did like in the way that he captured how I, some of the ways that I felt while reading the book, that I, either he felt them too, or at least my viewing experience, I felt myself clicking into the same space that I was in while reading the book. And I really enjoyed being able to do that and then seeing how he interpreted it. And there's a, there's a lot of filmmaking and some of it is very interesting and uh, cool to look at, but there's enough about it that is a real problem that is hard to recommend. I'll start with the high points. I like the score. I thought the transitions were really inventive, like be that with production design or just how they transition shots. Like that was the most fascinating part to me. The cinematography overall, I can't say that I liked that just because it's changing between aspect ratios and black and white and color so much. Like I had, I think, a note on my first page of that happening. And that was really early on. Like I get that they're showing the photography of Marilyn Monroe and trying to expand on those images and the stories happening around them. And I think that's cool. But again, it's not done in the right way. Mm So the cinematography for me was so distracting. And the last part was Anadarmus, who I felt at times just completely disappeared into Marilyn, which I think was great. It's just that, again, everything good is overshadowed by the mess that is happening. This like perverse, disgusting, gross, dehumanizing mess that just makes it so hard to watch. Like by the end, I'm just like, no, no, I was audibly saying things and like hiding my face like we don't need a pov from inside her vagina like we don't need that i during the first abortion scene that we have and when i realized then later that like 
this movie, in my opinion, is incredibly anti-abortion. And I think in another movie, if you flesh out the character more and maybe went into her point of view more, you could understand maybe why she felt that way as a pregnant woman. But to have talking fetuses that are visually not accurate to the point in her pregnancy, I actually, during the abortion scenes, had like, I didn't realize I was crying because I was so angry. Like, it wasn't a sad, like, I feel badly for this character. It was a, I am angry that people are watching this movie and that I am here watching this movie too. Mm. And that to me was Mm. just, it was too, way too much. And that was not the same way that I felt reading the book. There were times that I felt like very locked into it because of that. But yeah, I feel like they were only interested in portraying Marilyn, Norma Jean as a corpse. Like there are even visual cues to them, like putting makeup on her face where she, it looks like she's already dead and they're putting makeup on her where I just, I was like, okay, he's only interested in this person not as a person but as a woman who is already dead and that was just not for me and upset me when I was watching the movie I also have huge problems with the ending and I understand that the ending in the book is very controversial but I think they should have stuck with what was in the book because what we got was I feel fine spoiling this honestly because I'm warning people not to watch it is what I would call a suicide shot by Abercrombie it was truly like if an Abercrombie commercial was depicting a suicide. That's how it felt to me watching it. And I was just like, this is not okay. Yeah, I was surprised with when it ended. I, I, this was also, I think the last 15, 20 minutes is a blur for us after the medical emergency in the theater. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't sure if I was missing things or what, what all was happening and trying to catch up. But I agree the... Uh, other than the, the portrayal of the Maryland character throughout um, the entirety of the book, one of the more controversial things, like you said, is the very ending of the book. And I was conf- very confused at the end at how fairly closely the, the film had followed the plot of the novel and then to end without including it. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised and I was sure that I missed something, but have since kind of realized that I haven't. So. I wonder, I texted this to you, but I, I wonder if that was intentional, if kind of what aspects of the much longer cut that Dominic initially wanted had to be removed or changed. Um, we were saying we don't necessarily ever want to see the longer cut, but would be, would like a bulleted list of maybe what mm-hmm. what was different <laughs> or what was changed, particularly the ending. I, I can see Netflix having a lot of issues with the ending yeah i just want to know if he had the other the original ending in mind that's all i want to know really from this movie so i guess just to wrap up the blonde discussion my thing when i think about the oscars when voters are watching this and it's a screener like how far are they making it 30 minutes 20 minutes do they just want to see anna and then they dip out I don't think they're finishing this movie. I think that's a major barrier to it because it is just such an intense, long watch. Even the beginning to me when she's a child and Julianne Nicholson plays her mother, even that to me, I was like, what? Why is this mother playing this character so loud? Like it was too much. The camera was already doing its thing. 
even that to me, I was like, how am I going to make it nearly three hours? I mean, after 45 minutes, again, if I was at home watching this on Netflix, I would have turned it off. I would have turned on something more appealing, more fun. It's nearly October. Like, I'll just watch an actual horror movie. So I, yeah, I definitely feel that sentiment because I would not be one finishing this movie. I saw someone on Twitter, they were at a, at a screening at TIFFs and they were sitting near Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Martin mm-hmm. McDonough and asked them afterwards and they said that they hated it. Because I, I, I think people at mm-hmm. people who attend screenings in the industry, like maybe they go to the Academy screening or other in-person galas or something, they mm-hmm. might stay for the whole thing and still not like it. I think if you stay for the whole thing, in my opinion, I think that Anna comes out very strong. I am I am a, a really big fan of Anna in this movie. I don't know if the rest of the movie and what we're saying about people actually watching it is going to let her stay in the conversation much. But I wonder if even not having seen it, even just watching 30 to 45 minutes will be enough for someone to say, she's playing Marilyn, check. I think it could be. Because what she does is convincing. And there are moments where I do think like Dominic was so, so concerned with the exteriors of everything in this movie without looking at any of the interiors of the characters. But there are moments where she looks, especially from profile, oh my God, a clone of Marilyn. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is enough Mm -hmm. for people. And with Best Actress, the way that it is right now, I feel like we have... In my opinion, two very solid people whose like movies have been maybe three. Michelle Yeoh, Kate Blanchett, and Olivia Coleman. Empire of Light is a big question mark that we can get to in a minute, but there I, I think there can be room for her depending on how the rest of the year shakes out. I mean, it's not your traditional biopic, it's very different mm-hmm. than that, but she's playing a real person and in movie that some could see a, as a commentary about Hollywood. Nick's like, I'm done with Blonde. We're moving That's on. <laughs> it drops in a week, so you're going to have to deal with all the discourse. I mean, everyone's freaking out over Margot Robbie. I'm not. Me neither. <laughs> Margot? Okay, quick note about Margot. Because she... So someone did ask us how we were feeling about Best Actress, so we can talk about that a little. Um, now that since we're talking about Anna... If we are team Michelle, team Kate, or team Margot. And for me at this moment in time, like Margot for me is an actress who has never been interesting to me. And that's okay. That is my personal opinion. And the way that she is in this trailer, it doesn't scream 1930s Hollywood to me. It's very Studio 54. So that's what I'm going to say about that right now. now. Well, I remember you being a big... I know you're you're a big fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I remember you being a big fan uh-huh. of Margot in that. Is that like a exception for her, or are you more into the direction of that performance? More into the direction of the performance and like how the character is used in that. But I do I really enjoy watching her in that movie, and I would have picked her in that over Bombshell mm-hmm. that year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's just not. That is, I would say, more of an exception, but mostly because I like the movie and the direction. Yeah, like, I, Tanya isn't for me. No, I don't know. Wolf of Wall Street with her, no. Maybe Barbie will change my mind. That could be it. I think pre-tar viewing, I am 100% Team Michelle. I love 
her trajectory this entire season. I mean, Kate won at Venice and she won an award that we'll get to in a second, but that everyone loved her. And I love when she gives that like blue Valentine, she just goes all in and that's what I love to see. And I can't wait. And I'll probably change and be team Kate. But the fact that those two are front runners right now, I hope that sustains itself for the next few months because I love that. They're both campaigning. Michelle needs her first nomination and Mm -hmm. she very much deserves it for this, for her entire filmography. But if she won here, I mean, that would be a big thing for A24, but for this movie, this indie movie that has done so well, not really an Academy movie, which is really surprising me, but we'll see in a few months if it's still a thing. I am curious if, like, if we can pull real quick of back to Michelle Yeoh, where we're at with her in the conversation. This is a question my boyfriend Stephen had as well. I feel like it started after the film premiered. The conversation started with, will she get a campaign? Was Even, even just get a campaign was mm-hmm. going to be the win. The movie did so well at the box office. She gets all the buzz. They mount a formal campaign. Cool. Okay, so now we're there. So now I'm trying to figure out what feels like the win for Michelle is getting a nomination at this stage, the win for Michelle, and she will be happily fourth place and we're so happy for her and that's it. Or are we approaching the point? Fourth place. Yeah, I guess I'm saying like, mm-hmm. there are some niche performances, which I'm going to include Michelle Yeoh's in right now in the type of film for an actress that has never been nominated, where the conversation is just about, can they get nominated? And when, if and when they show up on nomination day, we're thrilled, we're so happy they're nominated, they don't have a chance at winning, but we're just happy that they're there. And that's like the win for them. I think of... Sort right. of like Penelope that Cruz. That was Kristen Stewart. Penelope Cruz last year, even though like that that was weird. She sort of had potential oh to man, win. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, it it was just <laughs> like like okay, can Penelope get nominated? She we don't really think she's gonna yeah. win, but like and then she got nominated. And we're so excited and cool. I'm thinking right now, are we still at the point where it's like if Michelle gets nominated, then that is the win. It's like a Penelope Cruz of last year, and we're just thrilled. Or are we beyond that already? Like the nomination is assumed and the win for Michelle would be Best Actress getting the Oscar. I'm wondering if we're there yet or not. I think she's far enough up that that is still the question. We don't have three people better than her. And I think Penelope, that movie, which wasn't even nominated for International Feature, that's a different conversation. I think if we get to the point where there are other actresses that are just above and beyond going to be nominated than maybe but we're not there right now viola davis does not have that higher ranking right now i think kate does i don't think olivia does for sure like her the academy's love for her yes so that maybe puts michelle in third we can't call her nomination the win yet for me i think that right now the narrative or maybe the collective thought is michelle is getting in She has tributes. Her movie's doing really well. She's overdue. I think that is what I'm hearing and what I'm absorbing is that the win would be the win. But me personally, I meant the nomination would be a win because there's always that part of me that knows the type of performances that the Academy likes and knows how A24 can mess up a campaign. And when they have Brendan Fraser 
as a best actor front runner, like, can they do both? Can they juggle two movies that are getting strong emotional reactions out of people in the whale and everything everywhere all at once? So while I have Michelle in, I wouldn't expect a win right now because for me, like Kate Blanchett right now feels like Daniel Day Lewis and there will be blood. Mm. And that's harder for a woman to win on a on a mean character, on a thorny character. Absolutely. But that is that's what it's feeling like for me at this moment. And I think in order for Michelle to surge, she has to win more critics prizes. And I think Kate might take them. Interesting. What do you think? I'm still I'm still in the the nomination is the win because I, I still think that the movie is very weird. Mm-hmm. and young i don't know what the reaction of an older audience has been to that film i mean it made so much money but i most i mean our cohort were mostly seeing younger people going to see it and telling your friends to go see it but i do think that the drum is beating for her with the tributes with her name still being in the conversation after some of the other films have not done as well during the festival season so yeah i'm still i'm i'm still at the point where in two years from now, I feel like I'm going to look back and say, isn't it great that Michelle got nominated for that movie? As opposed to in two years from now saying, I'm so mad Michelle didn't win for that movie. Because I think that those are two very different vibes and perspectives yeah. that we have. Basically, you look at a list of five, you can look at one and be happy that they're there and one and be mad that they are where they are. And mm-hmm. I'm still at that first point. I think that makes sense. And Nick, you brought up Viola Davis. I do think one thing about Viola that's really big, though, is that The Woman King is doing very, very well at the box office right now and has an A-plus cinema score. So I think the way that she is doing Q&As and talks and the way that this movie is hers and she's talking about it like it's her magnum opus, I think there's a very real shot that she could factor in especially when we think about things like the globes or sag where viola davis is adored like that is very Mm -hmm. very much a possibility yeah i'm not saying she can't get nominated but i will say that thusa to me was the superior actress in the movie who plays a younger character so it is very much viola's movie the original posters it was viola davis the woman king and it's a true story and there is a very clear narrative there and i mean we can kind of transition into tiff and tell you right now since that was one of the biggest movies out of tiff the cinema score being an a plus you know that and top gun maverick that was the big news this week the only two movies to do so this year that was kind of one of the big things out of tiff that i felt differently from last year was that there were a lot of crowd favorites Mm -hmm. and you know it was like was Glass Onion going to be up there? Was Bros, even Bros, it, it shocked me how More much raving. everybody loved that movie. I mean, and that's a great response. I'm glad that it it's not even mixed. Like, it's very positive. So I'm really excited to see that. That comes out later this month on a wide release. And then The Fablemans. But what were you guys shocked about most from tiff the reactions or what one we can talk about the winners too yeah so just covering the winners people's choice or the audience award winner from tiff is always the big story because there is a correlation there with 
being either a best picture winner or a runner-up really for best picture you win an oscar in some category so last year it was belfast it's been nomadland jojo rabbit green book these have all been tiff audience award winners so the fablemans won the audience award this is steven spielberg's autobiographical film women talking plays second and glass onion and knives out mystery was third the whale got very positive responses out of tiff but didn't place um, just mentioning that, but I think these three, not to say we expected them, but they feel solid to me as like TIFF audience movies. I think the bigger story really than the Fablemans winning is women talking, getting runner up, mm-hmm. which did premiere. That had its world premiere at Telluride, where Sarah Polly won the silver medallion following in Chloe Zhao and Jane Campion's footsteps there. And... It played really well with both groups, at Telluride and at TIFF. I'm very excited to see this movie at New York. And I feel like it. people maybe were doubting it as this, like, cold, distant film, sort of like how people responded to The Power of the Dog. And I don't really think it's that. I also don't think we should necessarily compare the two, or at least I'm not, because I don't want to get my heart broken or be let down when I see it, and it's not The Power of the Dog. I think we should, because I think it will be, and I think you're going to love it. And (laughs) a lot of those descriptions of meditative or conversation after a trauma and deconstructing it, like that to me, you know, doesn't parallel the power of the dog, but it has similar vibes to it. So I think it is really big for that to have been the runner up, because... For a People's Choice Award, I would absolutely not have expected that. So I'm excited. And I think, you know, that does put her in contention for Best Director as well. The The big thing with the Silver Medallion winners, the past four years, one of those has gone on to win the Oscar. So 2018, we had Quaron, who won Director for Roma. Then we had Renee Zellweger, who won Best Actress. Chloe Zhao won Best Director. And then Jane Campion, also Best Director. So it's like Sarah Polly or Kate Blanchett, like they have a very big chance of winning. Could it be both of them? You know, we've had dual winners from the Silver Medallion go on to win Oscars. So I think that's really exciting. Yeah. So I feel like where I'm thinking right now is the Fablemans and Women Talking, like these feel to me like big Best Picture contenders. They're very different. I haven't seen either yet. I will note that. (laughs) Not a lot of people have. But one thing about the Fablemans that makes me really excited is that a lot of critics who I really love and generally agree with really like this movie. It's not like a Belfast (laughs) where the (laughs) audience really likes it and critics I trust are like, this movie is sort of empty and doesn't tell you anything about the director it's the opposite and people are really praising him and the style of this movie so i'm very excited to see it but i feel like those in my head are our two big contenders at the moment that's my one and two i'm not considering babylon right now based on the trailer alone as my one and two because no one's seen it yet from what i've seen it sounds like empire of light could be the belfast of this mm-hmm. year it's it's not i don't think it's about sam mendes's childhood is it it's not but it's like about when he grew up i think it's like that time there's period this, so there, okay so there's director nostalgia there's 
love of movies and something that seems to be Mm -hmm. playing well to some but others are realizing that it's just really not good which sounds like Belfast to me yeah and with Empire of Light the thing that I sort of noticed out of Tiff and Telluride with that one was that people were responding really well to performances and to how it looks Roger Deakins' cinematography, the Reznor Ross score, Olivia Coleman. They were noting these specific things, but there wasn't that sort of triumphant praise. Like, oh my God, this movie made me feel. I didn't get any of that, at least from early reviews. And I do wonder, you know, this year we have a number of personal stories in the conversation. We have The Fablemans. We have Empire of Light. We didn't talk about Inyaritu's Bardo yet, which was completely panned and destroyed at Venice, called self-indulgent, all of that. But we have so many personal stories this year that I wonder if there really is just a split and none of them can really come out on top, or if because Spielberg is there and Spielberg is Spielberg, he just sort of eclipses them all. I mean, it feels to me, the Fablemans and women talking being on top, like this feels like a good split, picture-director split. And obviously... None of us have seen this movie. We are talking from reactions and reviews, but it still feels like it could happen. There's some level of The Fablemans that I'm taking with a grain of salt because it was Spielberg's first film to ever play Tiff, and he was Mm -hmm. there, and it's his love letter to his childhood and his mother and cinema, and that that movie ultimately winning the Audience Award felt a little predestined to me and I will wait until more people have seen it and of course that I've seen it to see if any of the rapturous reviews from people that I trust if anything is was influenced from the fact that it was that environment because I for the first Mm -hmm. time I felt festival fever I definitely loved some things stronger than I than I probably would otherwise and hated some things stronger than I might have found middling so I, maybe I'm just being sensitive to the fact that it was his first TIFF premiere. I'm going to wait till there's another round of reviews. Yeah, I mean, I think that's wise. People right now are also just so eager to wrap everything up and be like, it's over. The Fablemans is our best picture winner. Let's stop pretending. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we are six months away, people. Please calm down. You mm-hmm. don't need to be the first one to be right. Like, let's just wait and see. Wait till we've seen all of these movies and how people are actually responding to them in the industry. Like, these critics who are writing these reviews, like, they're not going to vote for the Oscars. They don't vote. Mm -hmm. So we have to wait and see a little bit more before we just go ahead and say, this is a lock. Because that's never going to work. And every year is different, too. And I feel like people have CODA in their heads and everything that happened with that. And they're like, people like nice things. People want to feel. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, every year's different. You never know. I did look on Letterboxd of all of the films screened at TIFF, and there are only like maybe a thousand or so reviews, which still isn't that many. But the highest rankings from the festival were The Fablemans, After Sun, which mm-hmm. I'm also excited about, mm-hmm. Glass Onion, The Banshees of Inishirin, The Whale. That's showing up in fifth kind of shocked me. Then Women Talking, Triangle of Sadness, The Woman King, Decision to Leave, and All Quiet on the Western Front. And I heard good things about that one. I heard good things about all of these. 
Another category that we got a lot of submissions in via Telluride and TIFF was in documentary. And this is kind of shaping up to be an interesting category. We have All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which could show up. Moon Age Daydream, which is the David Bowie IMAX feature. People are loving that. And that I think is in theaters now or will be very soon. There's Senior, the documentary about Robert Downey Sr. and Jr. That played very well. And then Is That Block Enough For You? And All That Breathes. So I heard a lot of responses about documentaries. This is always an interesting category. So one to keep your eye on going forward. Especially Nick's favorite documentary of the year, Nuclear. This was also an interesting experience because we were in that main theater at Venice and Oliver Stone is there, like obviously a giant in the industry. And there was long applause before the movie at every title of the title sequence, especially when his name showed up. Then when nuclear showed up, it just like kept going. And then after the movie, I was like, okay, start the timer because at this point the entire festival has happened. And like, this is when the Twitter jokes came out of like the long standing ovations. Yeah. Everyone got longer. And I was like, there is no way blonde got a 14 minute standing ovation. It's just no, but like this was six plus minutes for Oliver Stone, but this was an interesting nuclear energy propaganda piece that I don't think will be showing up, but again, anything could happen. No, it'll show up at your local science museum played on a loop. (laughs) The last movie I just want to touch on briefly is Bardo. We haven't seen it yet, but this is this like three hour Inuritu film. Daniel Jimenez Cacho isn't playing Inuritu, but he's playing a documentary filmmaker and it, is about Inuritu's personal experiences in Mexico. And I've seen, I think, a lot of people say, like, it's dead. Count this out right now. Like, this is out of the race. People don't have it in their picture 10. They're not considering it. Inuritu is out of the director race. And to that, I have to say, I don't buy it. I just am too, you know, he has two best director wins. And for anyone like that, I just, I feel like the industry has to love him. And when this movie premiered at Telluride, critics didn't like it either. But I saw what Lulu Wong had to say about it, and I was floored. Like, she said it was the type of movie she would make if she found out she was dying. That is, like, the most profound response or reaction you can have to a film. So I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to count out Bardo at all. And I think Netflix will keep pushing it, too. Mm -hmm. Because what else do they have really but also industry support could really be there for this yeah i agree i think there's clearly enough people who gave him best director twice and many other nominations and wins for his films over the years and those people are the ones who are responding really well to this film even though audiences and critics are not so i i see it maybe at least staying in the conversation for some industry prizes, but I don't know. I'm scared to see it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think technical categories could still be up too. I mean, all of the stills we got were pretty flashy in terms of cinematography, so I'm not counting that out. Production design, like you said, in your E2 films, get nominated. I mean, every single one of his movies has gotten nominated somewhere. Do we know if Mexico is submitting it or if they've already submitted something else? 
I don't know if they've confirmed it yet, but I feel like it's pretty likely that they would submit it. Because maybe that's where it gets in. Um, Mm -hmm. If it doesn't make anywhere else, then it gets kind of that, still gets that recognition in the international feature category. Because I know Mm -hmm. a bunch of countries have started submitting. Well, I think Bardo, you know, the space in between, (laughs) this sort of limbo (laughs) is a good place for us to end our recap episode today bennett thank you for joining us you'll be back very soon for our oscar predictions and things like that as we know more and the season progresses but thank you for joining us from italy oh, thank you for having me yeah i'm ready to go to bed and you two can have lunch or whatever time it is there <laughs> <laughs> yeah no very very happy to be here and to talk through what was potentially a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to come to venice i came here on mostly my own dime as a, like I said, as a civilian. And I'd mm-hmm. say anyone listening who can make it to Venice can like save up for it. It is totally a fest that is able to be done as just a member of the public. Um, I know getting like getting press passes or other types of passes, there's, there's a ton of different things you can apply for that if you qualify, if you're in the industry, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a student, um, there's a bunch of other ways to get passes. But uh, if none of those, it still can be a great time to to come and be part of premieres and see stuff before anyone else does and get to just talk shit about the whale. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Bennett. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll have a September release roundup. We'll be discussing don't worry darling we're both seeing it i'm very excited to talk about it even though i don't i mean just harry styles and olivia wilde and all of that the woman king see how they run barbarian we'll be talking about a number of movies that we've seen this month and what we liked and if we think they'll show up in the oscar race Mm -hmm. yeah it's been fun like going to the movies consistently being back in like a less hectic way than it was at the festival so i like that these good movies are ramping up and We'll have a lot of fun. I'm excited for you to see Barbarian. It is a ride. So, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on socials at Oscar Wilde Pod. And feel free to check out our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. We have lots of extra content. Our bonus series podcast called After Dark. We have extra episodes. We have a whole series on Benefer right now. And... Lots more coming. I'm excited for October. We'll be doing some Halloween movies, some scary, campy movies. So lots going on there. Thank you so much. We will see you all very soon. Bye.